So we've talked about identity, we've talked about authority, and now we're talking about community. Hmm. Everybody sort of wants it. Uh, I think it was Oz Guinness. Was it Oz Guinness? I'm not sure. Somebody said, everybody wants community until they learn there are other people in it. Uh, And that's the tension that we live with is we want to be together until we recognize there are crazy people in this community that I'm part of. Um, Good thing I'm normal. Uh, And so that's the the tension we live with, the kind of a desire for independence, a desire we we have this. It's not good for us to be alone. We want to be with other people to a certain extent. Um, And yet... That's how we find ourselves tossed in this world. And so as we relate to each other, we want to start a little bit talking about just general ethics and the foundation for why we do what we do as Christians, and that'll provide some background for then as we start thinking a bit more strategically about who we are collectively. Uh, the, the first part I did on identity was a, a bit more of an individualistic perspective, but as we think of ourselves as a community, then that's an identity under a, an authority that has a collective vision of who we are. But to get into this question of why do we do what it is that we do, we can spool this all the way back to Socrates. Um, and there's a, a, fa- um, a famous interaction that he had with a young guy named Euthyphro. And this has gone down in history as Euthyphro's dilemma because the man, young man's name is Euthyphro. And uh, so Euthyphro is on his way to court to turn his father in for a crime that his dad had committed. And Socrates engages him and in his normal way starts asking him a lot of questions about, you know, why are you doing this? What is good? And then what is pious? What is the right thing to do? What is good? And to summarize a bunch of this, Socrates poses this question to the young man because the young guy had given an answer about what is pious based off of what the gods want or something like that. And so so Socrates says, is something good because the gods command it or do the gods command it because it's good? So we would say, well, we're people that believe in a god and that that existence has some bearing on our reality, but is, is something good? Is it the right thing to do just because God says it is, or is God commanding it because it's good? And the reason that this is theologically difficult is that if we say, oh, oh well, God commands it, therefore it's good, and there are many religions of the world that believe that, by the way. It's like God just, whatever God decides, it's good. We go with it is that it makes goodness arbitrary to the will of God. God can change his mind. And what was good at one time might not be good in our time. Uh, It's just whatever God tells us at that moment, that's what we got to go with. So that's one problem. On the flip side of that, if God commands it because it's good, that means there is a standard of goodness that transcends God. There's a set of rules that God has to play by, and he's commanding us to do those things out of that set of rules. Well, then that kind of changes our vision of what God is because he's no longer the highest thing. So is it good because the God's commanded? Does God command it because it's good? And this is kind of pitched out as Euthyphro's dilemma. Now, you know what a dilemma is, uh, or a false dilemma, is when you have, uh, you're, you're presented with two options, but really there's a third option. Uh, most logical fallacies make a ton of money. It's how marketing works, is they kind of trick you into this thing. And I've even used it before. We were doing a an event at uh, Royal Welsh College in Cardiff, Wales. Um, and we had these flyers we were handing out for an event. And people were coming to our class and nobody was taking our flyers. I was like, okay, we got to re-strategize here and use some faulty logic. So we took some sweets, some little like lifesaver candies and stapled them to a whole stack. And as students came by, I would say, would you like a flyer with or without a candy? And they'd be like, oh, you know, take one and go. So I didn't give them the option of not taking a flyer. I was like, would you like one with or without it? Um, that's a false dilemma. They definitely had the choice 
of not taking anything, but it just didn't register in their minds because of the way that I presented it that it could go. And so sometimes those are, that's a false dilemma. It seems like there are two options, but there are more than that. And so Christians historically have said that Euthyphro's dilemma is a false dilemma. Neither one of those are the correct option or opportunity. God just doesn't willy-nilly make up stuff and say that it's good, and there certainly isn't a category of good that he uh, relates to, but rather God reveals to us what he wants us to do based off of who he is. And so the character and the nature of who God is provides the platform and the foundation for what it is that we ought to do. It's easy to live in a world, and we do, where people say, oh, it is what it is. Have you ever heard somebody say that? It is what it is, kind of a fatalistic... This is the way the cookie crumbles, right? Um, it is what it is. And as Christians, we approach that differently. We, we can say, yeah, it is what it is, but it isn't necessarily what it ought to be. And so we uniquely have that category of oughtness. What should this be? What is the direction that this should be moving? And that's where the concept of ethics and morality comes in, is how do you get to that oughtness? What is the right thing that should be? And how you get from an is to an ought is one of the challenging philosophical questions of of history. David Hume, the atheist, was big on this. How do we get from what is, how do we pitch a vision, therefore, of what ought to be? And so what we're saying as Christians when it comes to ethics and morality, that what it is that we ought to do is reflected, is is, is a reflection of who God actually is. So the isness of God provides the foundation for the oughtness of humanity. Those aren't really words, but I'm making them up as I go. The isness of God provides the foundation for the oughtness of humanity. If you wanted that uh, grammatically, I think you could say that the divine indicative is the predicate of the human imperative. Um, so the divine indicative, the isness, is the predicate of the human imperative. So what it is that God commands us to do is based off of who he is. So if God was other than he is, maybe reality would be different. But other than God changing who he is, there isn't a reformation of our Christian behavior. So what does that mean? Um, I think it was, and, and we, we see this reflected. So, you know, that sounds f- funny and fancy, but actually it's all over the New Testament. I'll prove it to you, and you know this. Um, so New Testament passages, be holy because I am holy. Forgive as I have forgiven you, or as you have been forgiven. And on and on again, these things that God asks us to do, he points back to, I've already done it. Jesus never asks us to do something that he himself hasn't already done. He never asks us to do something that doesn't reflect who he is. And so we find ourselves living in that moment of what we do reflecting the character and the nature of who God is. The old mystic uh, Meister Eckhart, I don't know if you quote mystics in this church or not, but uh, sometimes they say interesting things. Uh, he said, you know, look, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up, and he has a whole bunch of other commands. So he said, was the purpose of those additional commands to out-Jew the Jews? Be like, well, you have 613, but we have 742. You know, like, no. The reason Jesus shows up and gives his commands, they're clarifying of those previous laws. But really, so his point is, he's saying that the, the commands that Jesus gives us He calls us to go the second mile because we serve a God who goes the second mile. He calls us to love our enemies because we serve a God who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. He calls us to serve. He calls, you know, so all of these things that Christ asks us to do as humans, as his followers, are reflective of who he is. And so that's the way in which Christian ethics points back to the character and the nature of who God is. 
Oftentimes, when we're trying to ask questions or we're trying to answer questions that people have for us about our Christian faith coming from a non-Christian perspective, a huge percentage of those questions are actually about what is God really like? So what about um, faith and science? What about suffering and evil? What about, what about, what about, what about? Those are all questions of saying, you know, if there is a good God, how could he allow suffering? That's a question about his character, right? His character, how is he? Um, And so over and over again, a lot of the questions that are lobbed against us by skeptics are questions about what is God actually like? And so this is an opportunity for us to start thinking about there. Okay, how do we actually know what the character and nature of God is? And we see at the beginning of, of Hebrews, he says, hey, long time ago, God revealed himself, spoke to us through the prophets and such. But in this time, through his son. And so we can look at Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. There again in Hebrews 1, Philippians 2, having you the mind of Christ. And so we have this, as Christians, we say we know what the character and the nature of God is like because of the person of Jesus. So Jesus does become the foundation of our ethics. It all, he also becomes the focal point of addressing a lot of the questions that skeptics have about the character of God. We point to the life of Jesus and say, hey, do we see a God dealing with suffering and still loving us? Yeah, absolutely. Look at the life of Jesus. And so we're, we're driving it back into a truly Christian response because it's truly based off of Christ, both for our behavior um, and for a behavior that reflects who God is. Remember when we started talking about identity last night, we talked about our ability or our capacity to, to reflect God's glory and his goodness and be representative of what he has for us to do. And so this is just a, a call back into the way that our lives live and the ethical choices that we make are reflective of how God actually is, not a willy-nilly desire that he has for us to jump through different hoops. So what does this look like? How does this uh, spool off? Well, um, And I'm not saying that I'm good at this. I'm just saying that this seems to be the direction that Scripture is pushing us to say, how can we conceive and conceptualize our um, behavior and interactions with each other as based off of how uh, God would have us do that? Uh, There's a a story that I remember just recently from my childhood that I've been using that kind of points to where I think this is supposed to go in my life. So, do they still, do you uh, know the, the fireballs, the little cinnamon candies, they're about this big around, they're um, really spicy hot. Uh, so my dad taught fifth grade, and we were in a, a local store, our, our local general store one time, and he said to the clerk, he said, hey, um, can I get a box of fireballs for, no, I think he said, can I get a case of fireballs for my students? Can you order them through the store? And the lady said, sure, that's fine, I'll do it for you. So a couple days later, my mom calls home from the store and says to my dad, hey, Julian, did you order $47 worth of fireballs? And dad said, well, I didn't really know they were that expensive, but I ordered them, so pay for it. And this is when we learned a very important economic lesson, that there's a difference between a box and a case. Uh, And he thought he was getting like one of those little boxes that goes on the aisle. We got a case, like several thousand fireballs. I mean, I forget, it's somewhere between three and 5,000. I don't know. It was a lot of fireballs. And I don't know what you would do if that many fireballs showed up at your house. I came down one morning, and my brother was eating them with milk on it like cereal. Just, we, were so, we were so immune to fireballs, we could just crunch them down. We had it. Um, but then we, we just had like so many of these, we have to get rid of these, right? And so my mom was always packing them for us as we would go to school, and we would, we would stuff them in our pockets. Um, you know, we'd be going out the door, and mom would be, have a, good day, have a good day at school, boys. Did you? Yes, mom, we remember to take our fireballs. Um, and, and you couldn't step up into the bus because there were so many fireballs wadded in our pockets. And we would go down the bus aisles and the aisle, halls at school and just hand out fireballs. And people would say, 
Yeah, we, we crashed the entire fireball economy there for a while. Um, they were free. But people would say, Rittenhouse, why do you have so many fireballs? I'd be like, oh man, I have an abundance. My pockets are full. Please take them. And they say, why do you have so many fireballs? And I would say, I have an abundance. My pockets are full. Let me tell you a funny story about my father. I have an abundance. Let me tell you about my father. How do I live a life like that? Where I'm walking down the street and I have an abundance mentality and people say, Rittenhouse, why are you so hopeful? Rittenhouse, why? And I say, let me tell you. I have an abundance. My pockets are full. Let me tell you a story about my father. What does that look like for you guys as a community here on Washington Street in Suffern, New York? How does that play out? I have an abundance. My pockets are full. Let me tell you a story about my father. What is wrong with you guys in a good way? And so there's an overflow of who God is that pours out into the way that we engage other people. Now, in that engagement, the, the, the buzzword is love, right? Everybody's talking about love. It's, it's funny to me that all of the world wants love and justice, and most people are pretty poor at defining either one of those. Um, so we all want it, but we don't know what it is. Uh, in in um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's helpful little book called Life Together, which is kind of his intense look at community, the, the chapter there on community, he points out a very interesting thing that I think is worth us taking a moment to think about here. And he says that there's a difference between a, a divine love and a human love. And what he pushes into and what he realizes, and I believe is true, that often, he says, a human love seeks to captivate and to capture and to desire and to want to be wanted. Um, and it's expressed as a sacrificial uh, giving of self, but it's really a giving of self in order to manipulate that other person into liking you. Does that ring true? Have you ever seen that in life? Or I, I know it hasn't happened in your life, but probably one of your friends was in a bad relationship. Let's leave it out there, right? Of, of things are done with the verbiage of love, but it was really a binding and manipulating type, um, self-serving sort of love. So I say I love you in order for you to do this for me, kind of um, disordered type love. And what he ends up concluding in that is that as humans made in the image of God, it is very difficult for us to directly love somebody else. And the reason he says this is because... Um, Really, our love is deepest when it's mediated through Christ. And so somebody else's value and my love for them is not just based off of who they are to me. It's based off of who they are to God. And so it it forms a bit of a, a, a triangular vision here of as I think about who God is and I think about who I am, and as that relationship intensifies... Um, I start to recognize, oh, hey, this is who God is. This is who I am. I'm pretty sure God doesn't love me because of, you know, all the wonderful things I've done or lack thereof. It's just that he loves me independently of, of my stuff. And when I start to, re- that becomes a reality in my mind, then I start thinking, oh, you know what? I guess God loves Will that way too. And I don't know Will. I just met him yesterday. We talked on the phone once or twice. Um, But that knowledge in and of itself, if he also is made in the image of God, God also loves him. And if God can love me the way that I am, then I know God loves him the way that he is. And that fundamentally alters the relationship that we have between each other, even though we barely know each other, even if we were complete strangers. And so there's a sense in which if we leave God out of the loop, there's great possibility for a disordered uh, relationship between us if I don't think he is made in the image of God. He's a child of the Most High God. God loves him and the value that he has 
is important for the way that I treat him because of that. So we're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And what we, what we hope develops out of that uh, is unity. Unity is the language that we say, oh yeah, there, there's some kind of unified relationship when this uh, loving each other is working well. And if you want to pop up the slide there from John 17, um, we'll, we'll read this for a second. A um, couple different passages here. Um, and think about this, because this is, when we start talking about community, everybody always goes to this. So, John 17, 20, 23. My prayer is not for them alone. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he's saying, hey, a prayer isn't just for them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. In language? Yep. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Is there another slide there? Is that, yeah, okay. I wasn't sure if we got it all in one or not. So here's what's interesting about this. Think about this for a second. Everywhere that I go to speak, the places and the congregations and the groups of Christians that are seeking unity never have it. And all the places that aren't looking for it do have it. What's going on there? How does that work out? Maybe you've noticed that. Uh, benefit or a curse of the job. Those who are seeking unity don't have it. Those who aren't seeking it do have it. And I couldn't figure this out. And then I started looking at this passage. And everybody points back to this. Well, we have to be unified. Because by being unified, this is the way that the world's going to know uh, about the goodness of who God is. It's right there in the text, right? That they be brought to complete unity, and then the world will know that you sent me. And so our unity is, is foundational to our witness. And so I say, we have to strive for unity. Well, no. Because that's the second half of the thought there. Here's what happens. Unity is not an achievable goal. Unity isn't something you can shoot for and get. Unity is the byproduct of a collective common identity. So before we get to this, that they may be brought to complete unity, you have this, uh, just as you sent me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that type of language. And so unity is the byproduct of a common identity. It's not a goal you can shoot for and reach. It's the residual effect of having a common identity, a common oneness to who we are. And what often happens then, if you have a group of people that puts unity as the goal, then the minimum becomes a standard. You look for the lowest common denominator between a group of people, and based off of that lowest common denominator, you form an identity. But, so when unity becomes the goal, the minimum becomes the standard, and when the minimum becomes the standard, it suddenly lacks anything of the depth of discipleship to which Jesus calls us. Because you're just looking for the least common denominator, and that's not what Jesus was all about. And so this is a helpful thing just for us to keep in the back of our minds as we form community and think about who we actually are, is to say that first of all, our, the intensity of our unity is directly proportional to our sense of our unity with God, our common identity. And so that's why you pick up such deep familial language in the New Testament, this legitimate brother, sister, family of God type language, is because saying, hey, you and I have the same father. What's that make us? Brothers. And so the unity flows from that common identity. Now, in the midst of that, that also helps us then 
a little bit in some conflict resolution and some other categories of life because A, we recognize we have a common identity and B, we recognize that how it is that we treat each other is based off of the character and nature of who God is. And so his capacity to restore and to renew and to redeem and to pull back into fellowship and to work with each other um, in a helpful way arises out of both of these things put back together. Uh, there's a sense in which we, we learn to uh, sidestep ourselves. Uh, in the church that I'm part of, we, we wash each other's feet, which sounds really weird, I know, literally, when we have our communion. Um, and it's really awkward and weird. And you know what? The hardest part of that is, the hardest part is not washing somebody else's feet. It's having somebody wash your feet and serve you in that way. And as I look and watch people doing this, thinking, hey, there are two people that used to hate each other. And now they're kneeling and washing each other's feet. And so somehow this common identity in Christ just helps us sidestep self in so many ways of saying, you know what? The reality of who we are is so much bigger than my pet peeve about this thing that we used to have back when we were in high school or whatever. Um, It goes beyond that. And so there's an ability to form real relationship out of that. Um, And it gets us beyond that concept of of a house divided and brings us into deep familial language. It's actually interesting, uh, a number of prominent systematic theologies, when they talk about the church, talk about it as the temple, as the body of God, uh, number, numerous different ways of formatting that as the bride of Christ, and it is all of those things, but it's shocking to me that m- many of them leave out family as one of the chief descriptors of the church. And to me, it's just a completely biblical model of the way that Jesus talks about um, the bride of Christ, his family. We talked about it last night, right? Who is my mother and brother and sister? The one who does the will of God over and over again. Um, and then, of course, throughout the New Testament, beloved, brethren, family. It's, it's deeply saturated there. And so we move from a sense of um, individually reflecting God to that being true, but then stepping into the broader sense in which the community then that we form around that common identity collectively reflects Christ also. And so does our community point back are we a community with our pockets full um, in a way that actually it deepens the plausibility of what's going on? Because, hey, if it's just one guy doing this, that's a little bit weird. If it's seven guys doing it, that's six. If it's seven guys doing it, uh, then that, we're like, oh, there must be something beyond just that person that's holding them together. And so as a congregation, we have an intensified plausibility structure. We can do a better job of pointing beyond ourselves and ourselves individually if, if, we, if we can do it together. Now, there are certain barriers to community, um, and, and the stuff on community, you can read, it's not, this is not just a Christian thing, everybody's talking about community from Facebook to um, all kinds of social scientists to even mathematicians and those who are interested in artificial intelligence uh, writing about community and the formation of community, um, and everybody is seeking community, but we also recognize that loneliness is a massively destructive epidemic in our time. And that people are just lonely in unprecedented numbers and depressed in unprecedented numbers and feel so isolated. In fact, Sherry Turkle, who teaches at MIT, wrote a book titled Alone Together, How We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. And looking at the ways in which uh, there are systems of, and you know this, get on the subway, whatever, and everybody's just packed in their phone. The other day I was in the airport and I was sitting, and, and uh, on the other side there were 18 people in a row, 17 pe- there are 18 people s- sitting there, and 17 of them... We're, re- we're looking at their phones. So there's one lady just sitting there. And I thought, you know what? I'm 
I'm going to walk across and talk to that lady. She's the only one not looking at her phone. So I got up and started walking across the terminal. I was about halfway across, and she reached in her purse and pulled out her phone. And I was like, ah, walk back over to the... Um, so we're with people. We're proximate to people. There are people all over the place. We have more access than ever before, but we feel so lonely. And part of that is, is that we... Um, and this is one of the valuable things that Christian community can offer, is this odd thing where we can be digitally connected, but is, is that connection really based off of who I actually am? So the question is, can I be fully known and fully loved? Can I be fully known, who I actually am, how I really am, and still be fully loved? And I think what often happens is we, we pitch a version of ourselves that we would like to be true. So I cast this image of Nathan out there that I think you'll like. And then you say, hey, that, that image of Nathan is pretty cool. I like that guy. But I still know that you're liking the image of me that I'm projecting, not who I really am. And we never form deep relationships with that because we're always falling in love and being attracted and appreciating some self-projection of the other person. Uh, and, and you don't actually get to know me. I think we actually do crave that, though, do we not? For somebody to actually know who we really are and still love us. Can somebody really know who you really are and still love you? Who you really are, how you really are. Like, oh, well, there's the stage version of Nathan. But what about how he really is? And I'm not saying that all of us are living shams of lives that lack integrity. I'm just saying, and, and you're nodding along like you're seeing what can happen here, of we're creating concepts of ourselves for people to appreciate. And true community has to get past that of spending enough time together and being vulnerable enough that we can deal with the brokenness and the discouragement and the frustration and the wrinkles and the warts of our lives, and people still love us. I think that's why old friendship is such good friendship, right? They're past the point of being impressed with you for superficial reasons. That's why old people in love is a far deeper love than young people in love, right? They're like, uh, you, we're so beyond trying to impress each other for goofy reasons. Huh? No, I'm looking past you. <laughs> looking past you. Yeah. Um, time helps with this, right? Pushes us into it, of, of getting us past. Are you experiencing that? How does that work here in this building? I don't know you guys. I see a lot of you hugging each other when you come in. Looks like a friendly, pretty friendly place for people. Well, can we be known and truly loved? I was visiting a guy once uh, in a hospital, and I walked in. And I said, hey, how are you? And he said, what you see is how I am. And he wasn't saying it would be funny. He was just like, this is me. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I'd like to live a life like that, right? What you see is how I am. There's, there's no marketing going on here. This is just... This is just me. What you see is how I am. And so we're developing simultaneously personal integrity that who I appear to be would be in continuity with who I actually am and that both of those would be in continuity with how God is um, and that he can express himself through that. But then we're also working on the continuity and the integrity of the community, right? What does it mean to be part of All Souls Church? What does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to be part, to be Christian? Are there, are there ways that this community of people does things differently than even other churches around here? Is there, is there a, a, what's unique about this? Uh, do we have a, a collective corporate identity that we can be, hey, this is who we really are, 
um, but that we still really love each other and we still really love the community around us. That's a challenge. I'm not saying this is an easy thing. I'm just making the problem worse by throwing out there um, categories in which it's problematic. But again, I think it, it comes back into, we have to push back hard into this idea of that that family language that Jesus talks about in the New Testament and that Paul and the other authors write about is not just a, um, a flippant kind of, I think we do throw brother and sister around in a little bit of a loose way sometimes. But for them, it was a real ontological reality that when you are buried with Christ and raised with him, um, that it puts you in a new type of family in reality. And so when I see somebody and I call them my brother in Christ, that that is, that is indicative of a, of a fun, foundational, fundamental shift in how I actually view my posture toward them. I am responsible for them. They are responsible for me. We help each other out. Collectively, we reflect the goodness of God in our time and our place. Um, if you claim you love God and hate your brother, what? You're a liar. That's, that is all, that's, that's a big teaching, is it not? Claim to love God and hate your brother? Yeah, that's because these things are deeply connected. Uh, and then it also expresses itself in this question. How do you feel about the church? Have you ever... Um, <laughs> have you ever had a really good friend and they married somebody that just really annoyed you? Don't raise your hand. Stop. No. Um, what does that do to the foundation of your relationship? Hey, Will, I, I really like you, but your wife annoys me. That's not true, Kristen. But, um, you know, if she is special to him, then how I feel about her reflects our relationship. And if we view the church as the bride of Christ... We cannot view the church as the annoying fiancé of Jesus and that not fundamentally change our relationship with Christ. And we live in a time of a lot of YouTube Christians of like, oh, I don't need that. I just got my podcast and my YouTube. You know what? You're not going to form community that way. And you will find that you will dry yourself out doing that because you're lacking the ability to be fully known and to be fully loved. And you're lacking all the nuances of the flavors and gifts and personalities that form in Christian community, and you're missing out on the impact of what we can do collectively together that we cannot do on our own. And so test your heart this afternoon. How you feel about the collective people of God is a huge indicator about where you're at spiritually. If you claim to love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. How do we feel about the church? The tragedy of it is, is that if we're missing out on this, it's not just that we're missing out on, oh, what's happening at All Souls. Um, I can go all over the world and jump into worship and Christian community. It's part of the, uh, there's a guy called Jay John, uh, who's an evangelist in the UK, and he has a, um, a funny little skit um, or, or thing he does when, when somebody says, what do you do? And he says, well, I work for, you know, a multinational corporation. We have offices in every state and every country. And they say, well, what does it do? And he says, oh, we're into health care and education and uh, spiritual and personal refora- reformation and community transformation and personal you know, reintegration. And he just goes through this whole, whole long list of things that his company does. Uh, and he's like, we take care of infants and elderly. I mean, he just lays it out there. And people say, really, what's that called? And he says, the church. Um, we're part of that. And it's a beautiful thing, and we get to participate in it in different ways. When, we, when the music team comes up here and sings for us, is worship starting? No. 
all of the visions of heaven is that worship is an ongoing, continuous reality in the presence of God, that worship is, is happening. And when we come to worship, we're just stepping into that for a little bit. We're participating in something that is eternally happening. We get a little foretaste of that. We, get a, we were talking about it earlier. We get a little trailer of what is yet to come. We're just stepping into that for the moment. The big picture isn't here yet, but it's happening, and we get to participate in that. And in the same way, when we step into the church and we become part of the body of Christ, the family of God, we're getting a little foretaste of community because there's an eternal, long-term, forever-type community that we're being called into and that we're being uh, uh, wooed into, if you want to speak. And so to miss out on the benefits of community is to miss out on one of the richest and most profound elements of what it means to be a Christian, to do things that... um, Uh, allow people to come into that uh, is a wonderful privilege in life. But it also means that if we really care for each other, then there will be ways in which, um, and I forget who asked the question earlier about uh, boundaries and helping each other with that, but one of the most wonderful parts of community for me is that helping me see things from different angles and to see around the the corners and the turns. And I went to a church for a while that was... um, had this great practice. It was a little bit intimidating, but what they would do is you would get up and preach, and then whoever was leading worship or whatever would come up, and then he would just call somebody out and say, um, um, you know, just, just pick somebody out and say, will you come up and give testimony to the message? And so, hey, that meant you had to kind of be paying attention to what the sermon was about, right? Um, and so they usually they would pick an elder or somebody to come up, and he would say, um, hey, this is biblically faithful. This is what our church believes. Praise God for that. Or he might say, Yes, that's what we believe. He did say this. It sounded like he meant this, but I think this is what he really meant, or ask a question of clarification, you know, or something just to make sure it was all good. But somebody else would come up and kind of give a stamp of approval and say, we heard this correctly, and this was a good thing. Now, on some ways, you're like, oh, that's terrifying. But as a young guy speaking, it was wonderful to have somebody come up after your sermon and be like, yeah, that's right. And so the collective authority of the community, this isn't just some guy spouting off, but uh, we we hold each other in bounds. We were uh, at a place one time, um, and it was a farm, and they had this like, really powerful electric fence to keep some bulls in. And my three-year-old son went over and reached through to, to uh, pick a flower or something, I don't know, and touched his arm on the electric fence, and he was barefoot. So he got like a full shot of it, right? And he was like, you know, too stunned to scream for a second. Um, then he got it all together, um, <laughs> got it all toned down there. Um, and so what happened? Terrible experience, right? Well... About half an hour later, his little brother, who was one, goes toddling over in the same direction. And so the three-year-old just takes off running and takes his brother out. I mean, we're talking like full-on tackle from a three-year-old to a one-year-old. Wham! But he was like four feet before he got to the fence. Why did he tackle him? Don't touch that fence, man. (laughs) It's going to mess you up. It's better for me to tackle you four feet back from the fence, and you get a little bit of a grass stain rather than for you to experience what I've been through. Community does that for us. We need our Christian brothers and sisters to take us out four feet from the fence sometime because we're about to go off the rails. And so we have to be in those situations where we can fully know each other and be fully loved by each other and be confident in our identities in God so that somebody can come alongside of us and say, hey, brother, watch it. I've been down that path. Don't do that Uh, in a way. And it's just so life-giving. It's a phenomenal blessing. It's an invitation into a way of doing life together that is not possible under any other system or circumstance or set of ideals or conditions. We recognize that the way that we treat each other is a reflection of the character and nature of who we believe God to be. 
and that in doing so, we form a community that also collectively represents, and we are God's agents of change, and he allows us to participate in what he's doing, and the fact that we get to do it together is one of the most satisfying parts of being a Christian.